Hey everybody, I'm Eric. And I'm Sean. And we're the Verta Guys. We're checking out the dark side of DC. We're here to recap and review some Vertigo comics, starting with the big three. Preacher? Nope. Sandman, Hellblazer, Preacher. The big three. Preacher, Sandman, Hellblazer, Preacher. And Preacher. <laughs> that Jesse Custer, he can fight as good as two men. Once again, our delineation of the big three is completely arbitrary. Yeah. Also, our delineation of what constitutes three is arbitrary. And frankly, sometimes our delineation of what constitutes a Vertigo comic is spotty at best. <laughs> this week on the show, Sean didn't take any notes, and my notes sound distinctly Seanish. Whatever could have caused that? <laughs> <laughs> what issues are we covering? Oh wait, I'm the one who would know. It's Sandman issues 19 and 20. Right, we are continuing with a four-issue run that we call Dream Country. We call it that because Neil Gaiman does. Yeah, and this is a handful of standalone stories that are bridging the gap between the doll's house and the next story arc. This issue, Sandman number 19, A Midsummer Night's Dream, written by Neil Gaiman and Will Shakespeare. We have a special credit here, <laughs> additional material taken from the play by William Shakespeare. With art by Charles Vess. And the cover is by Dave McKeon, and there's no frame in this one, although there is sort of a photograph set on it. An image of a frowning lord, and to the left, there are several fairies. Yeah, this is actually sort of a less ominous cover. We're in for a fairly gentle issue, and this is a fairly, uh, a fairly gentle-looking cover to prepare you for it. Not a lot of dark colors. I'm not sure who Mr. I Don't Enjoy the Play over here is supposed to be. The logical conclusion would be Morpheus or Oberon, but I suppose that's getting ahead of ourselves. Maybe he's just the universal frowning man who represents the Vertigo readership. <laughs> it could be I... like a tragedy mask, but this is not a tragic play. I'm a sad adult. I need comic books for sad adults. <laughs> is that like, okay, now I have to ask if you invented this joke. Is it like Small and Bitter's? Oh, yeah, small, small and Bitters are not mine. They're from Married to the Sea. Okay. <laughs> okay, so we open on June 23rd, 1593. Where William Shakespeare is yelling at his kids. So Will and his son Hamnet are walking with the company in a bunch of wagons to the site of their performance tonight, which Shakespeare says is not going to be an inn. Hamnet asks where they will be performing, and Will says, I have no idea, but we will know soon. And over at this point comes Kemp, who has a great idea for a gag that he wants to use on the audience that evening. How would it be if I were to be eating a pork pie in the first scene, and then I could sit on it during Bob Armin's speech? I think not. But it would make them laugh. It would also make them laugh if you broke wind loudly, Kemp. Please. Just the lines and jests I have writ for you. We perform tonight. And before we turn the page, I do want to point out that in the distance of this first panel, on the hill can be seen a large human silhouette. Yeah, what do you think that's all about? They call this place Wendell's Mound, and apparently that giant is Wendell. I see. Is that the same figure that opens the portal later? Hush. All right. So they come around the corner and Hamnet spots someone waiting for them. Will he be our audience? I fear so, lad. Now, we should probably mention here that Shakespeare has appeared in this comic book before. Back in issue number 13, Men of Good Fortune, it was implied that he made a deal with Morpheus for the skill to write great plays. Right, and Morpheus requested something in exchange. Right, and we're going to find out what that is in this issue. In that same issue, Morpheus had mentioned that the fairies were considering leaving the mortal plane forever. And that is a storyline that we will see a lot more of in this issue. Now, Will sends Hamnet off to wait with the other boys. There's a good panel here of disappointed Hamnet. I mean, that's just the life of any child in the 14th century. Probably kids now have to wait around a lot, honestly. Or the 16th century. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, Will's got some important business to conduct, apparently, with his client who we recognize as Morpheus. You have come then, Will Shakespeare. Is it all ready? Shakespeare tells him that it is ready, a play written as Morpheus told it. 
which he says is the best he has ever written. I am sure it is. Not a lot of humbleness on this guy. <laughs> now, Shakespeare thinks this is an odd place to be performing, but Morpheus tells him, Wendell's Mound was a theater before your race came to this island. Before the Normans? Before the humans. Huh, that's good. Suddenly, in butts Richard Burbage, 1567-1619, to 1619, the best actor in the company. Will, what is happening? Who is this man? This is the gentleman I told you of, Richard. It was he who commissioned the new play. Ah, I am Richard Burbage, the leading man of Lord Strange's men, and head of our company, and you are? I am your patron for this play. You must act well tonight, Richard Burbage. Sirrah, I never give of a performance that is less than my best. Now, Burbage says that he always does a good job, but he prefers tragedy to comedy, and he's asked Shakespeare to write him a tragic lover character. That is probably a reference to Romeo and Juliet. Burbage was probably the first Romeo. So they say. Well, I'm not sure that the timing works out. From my research, it looked like Midsummer is actually preceded by Romeo. Yeah, there's some controversy there, as I remember. Mm. So Burbage asks to be led to Morpheus's hall, but Shakespeare clarifies that they will play it on the green sward. Richard is not happy to be performing on the hillside, but Will says he owes much to their patron. And they get ready for the show. Yeah, as the company gets ready, you see the young boys who are going to be playing all the female roles getting dressed up in their costumes. Yeah, I thought this was an effective piece of art, where this guy transforms from a pretty good-looking young guy to a pretty good-looking young woman over the course of three panels. You look very pretty! Thank you, Hamnet. For that, you shall have a strawberry. They hang a bunch of backdrops from the sides of their wagons, and this line is uttered, which I loved, By the Lord Jesu, you art wearing my beard! <laughs> yeah, that's just kind of background noise. Now, Will says they're ready, so Morpheus commands the door to open. Yeah, and did you want to describe this part? I sort of alluded to it earlier. So, yeah, there's this sort of giant human silhouette in a rectangular frame, a man in a door, which is set into the side of the hill. And in this case, it seems to be glowing. And at Morpheus's command, the human figure reaches over to one side and begins pulling the door open with a huge flash of light. And out comes the entire court of fairies. And we've got some really great art. Well, in this panel, but just throughout the issue as well, whenever whenever we see the fairies, Oberon is a pale man with long blonde hair and horns and some really badass-looking red armor. We've got Titania, very pale and wearing a fancy dress. And there's Robin Goodfellow, a feral-looking creature covered in brown hair. Yeah, Robin Goodfellow, a.k.a. Puck. And that's where we get our title, A Midsummer Night's Dream. Now, it's mentioned here as Morpheus begins greeting the Fey folk that they believed they had left the plane forever. Right, Oberon is surprised not so much by Morpheus's invitation as by the fact that they accepted. But Morpheus asks, is anything forever? And Goodfellow is right there with a witty reply. They say the seven endless are forever, mighty dream. You and the other six, until the death of time itself. What say you to that, king of the Riddle Realms? At which point Oberon tells him, Robin Goodfellow, mind your manners. We are Lord Shaper's guests, and I will not have him insulted by a hobgoblin. Which just causes Puck to smirk. Yeah, but I like Morpheus's response. It is a fool's prerogative to utter truths that no one else will speak. And so, with the audience prepared, Will commands the players to start. And break a leg. So, it looks like Will comes out, and as he looks upon the bizarre audience that sits before him, he cannot remember how his play begins. Right, he sees for the first time who the audience is, and he has a sudden flop sweat. Now, fair Hippolyta, whispers a child from offstage... And Will, playing Duke Theseus, launches into the first speech of the show. Now, fair Hippolyta, our nuptial hour draws on apace. 
I, w- I want to mention here, the Pale Companion is not for our pomp, he says, as it juxtaposes that line with Morpheus. But that line is actually referring to death. Turn melancholy forth to funerals. The Pale Companion is not for our pomp. It is well spoken, sir. Your mortal author fashions well, whispers Titania to Morpheus. And elsewhere in the audience, there's a funny dialogue between two fairies, one who thinks the players are there to be eaten, but the other tells her to shush because he's trying to follow the plot. It's a love story, not dinner. They're pretending things. So in the play, the players begin practicing Pyramus and Thisbe, while Oberon has to restrain Puck from making sport of the mortals. And it's at this point that, to Robin's intense displeasure, his character appears in the play. (laughs) It's you, Hobgoblin! That actor personates you! Either I mistake your shape and making quite, or else you are that shrewd and knavish sprite called Robin Goodfellow. Are you not he that frights the maidens of the villagery? Thou speaks to right, I am that merry wanderer of the night. I am that merry wanderer of the night. I am that giggling, dangerous, totally bloody psychotic menace to life and limb, more like it. This is spoken by a fairy named Peas Blossom, and the fairy sitting next to him or her says, Shush, the puck might hear you. Right, and those familiar with the play know that Peas Blossom is also a fairy from Midsummer Night's Dream. At this point, there's a throwaway mentioned by Titania that she has heard this tale before, sung once in old Greece by a boy with a lyre. Indeed, my lady? You are a deep one. I would I could fathom your motives. Later, lady. Watch the play. Now Hamnet enters the show, playing the role of the Indian child, and Titania takes an interest. Morpheus tells her she can meet the actor during the intermission. Ah, tis uncommon for you to have such waking commerce with mortal kind? We came to an arrangement four years back. I'd give him what he thinks he most desires, and in return, he'd write two plays for me. This is the first of them. And so there we learn the details of Morpheus's deal with Shakespeare. Right, although there's still some question as to what it is he thinks he most desires. Yeah, and I'll talk about that again in a moment. Now, Titania remembers moments before it actually appears in the play. In the old tale, there was a love potion that left the goddess rutting with an ass. It seems she remembers this story, although from having heard it before, not so much from life. Which reminds me, you remember Morpheus's line when they were talking about King Lear back in issue number 13? The great stories will always return to their original forms. Ah, yes. So as the love potion becomes involved in the plot, some of the audience begins to lose the thread a little bit. Peace Blossom once again turns to the fairy creature next to her and uh, needs clarification. Don't you ever listen? He's put the potion on what's name? Lysander, right? Now he's gonna fall in love with her, the skinny one. Huh? You see, Puck thought he was the other one, so when... Can't you be quiet? Some of us are trying to listen, says the one who thought the players were for eating. Not Hermia, but Helena I love. Who would not change a raven for a dove? So the play proceeds apace, but backstage, the actors are worried about getting paid. The play goes well, Will. However, it seems to me that we are performing for simple applause. And even we glorious vagabonds must eat. We shall have an interval at the end of Kemp and Condell's first scene. We can talk of silver then. Meanwhile backstage, an actor asks Hamnet about his father. You must be very proud of your father, Hamnet. Proud, I suppose. He's very distant, Tommy. He doesn't seem like he's really there anymore, not really. It's like he's somewhere else. Anything that happens, he just makes stories out of it. I'm less real to him than any of the characters in his plays. So we're calling back once again to Gaiman's favorite theme of muse abuse. Oh yeah, that's a good point. When he starts to talk about Shakespeare being removed from reality. And there's some allusion to the deal that was made four years ago. Hamnet says, Mother says he's changed in the last five years, but it seems to him that Will has always been this way. Judith, she's my twin sister. She once joked that if I died, he'd just write a play about it. Hamnet. All that matters to him is the stories, Hamnet concludes. Meanwhile, Puck's back on the stage, and the real Robin is delighted with the show. This is magnificent, and it is true. It never happened, yet it is still true. What magic art is this? 
Yeah, I really enjoy that line. That that might be the best line in the issue. We're right, they hear that reiterated later on. Right, they hit on it a couple of times, but the the events depicted in the play are not actual things that happened to Oberon, Titania, and Robin. But nonetheless, it's true to them as uh, it's true to who they are. And we come to the scene where Bottom transformed awakes into Tanya's bed. And the little fairy who's been thinking that the players were there to be eaten has a goat's head. And so she says, what's so funny about having a donkey's head, huh? Huh? Go on, tell me what's so funny. Besides, if you ask me, none of those women are women at all. They're males, I can tell. Human males taste more like rabbit than the females, and they stick in your teeth. Oh, yes. Did he say Peas Blossom? That's my name. What did he say? Will you shut up? I can't hear a thing with you rabbit and on like that all the time. Gentles, there will now be interval for you to freshen or to stretch your legs. Our tale begins again ten minutes hence. Right, it's intermission, and Oberon is reacting to the play. He thinks he should be mad, but instead he's impressed. And that's when Burbage shows up to ask for money. Meanwhile, Puck decides that he will play a little joke after all. You played me well, mortal, but I have played me for time out of mind, and I do Robin Goodfellow better than anyone. Meanwhile, Oberon consents to pay the players, and rather ominously hands Burbage a large sack of gold coins. Gold? You ask Oberon of the Fae for gold? Then you must have your gold, actor. Morpheus chats with Will, telling him the play is finely crafted, and it will last. And he mentions that Will owes him only one more play, which will be at the end of his career. Yes, the dream is the best thing I have written, and it plays well. Not even Kit Marlowe will be able to gainsay that. But Morpheus has some news for Shakespeare. You have not heard? Marlowe is dead, Will. He died in Deptford three weeks back, of a knife wound to the head. Who killed him? Ingram Fraser, I'll be bound. Cecil's man. Yes, Oh, Kit, I told you not to play with politics. Why did you tell this to me now? This news could have waited. Marlowe was my friend. I did not realize it would hurt you so. So, this stands in stark contrast to uh, Hamnet's complaints about Will earlier. That's a good point. Hamnet complains that Will doesn't really feel anything that happens in his life anymore. He just makes stories out of it, but... Will is obviously deeply affected by learning about Kit's death. By contrast, Morpheus is remarkably callous here. You did not realize? No, your kind care not for human lives. Dark stranger, already I half regret our bargain. But come, our night's comedy begins once more. But before we finish with the intermission, we have Titania trying to persuade Hamnet to come to the land of fairy. There is no night in my land, pretty boy, and it is forever summer's twilight. When they are interrupted by Morpheus, telling her the play will start anon. As the play continues, Oberon whispers to Titania that this will be their last visit to Earth. But Titania turns to Morpheus and says the gates of fairy will always be open for him. Yeah, she says, come when you wish. And he replies, perhaps one day I will. Meanwhile, Hamnet is trying to talk to Will about what Titania said to him, but Will is distracted watching Dick Cowley play Puck, who is acting better than he ever has. He seems almost two-thirds hobgoblin. Puck prances out onto the stage. Lord, what fools these mortals be! And that brings us to the scene where Bottom is being waited on by Titania's servants. And Titania's servants in the audience their names included in the play, they are complaining that they're being inaccurately represented here. Did you hear that? Peas Blossom. That's meant to be me, that is. Is nothing like me. Nothing. It's a... What's name? Travelog? Nah, travesty. That's it. <laughs> Meanwhile, Morpheus wonders to himself whether he has done right by Shakespeare. Will is a willing vehicle for the great stories. Through him they will live for an age of man, and his words will echo down through time. It is what I wanted, but he did not understand the price. Mortals never do. They only see the prize, their heart's desire, their dream. But the price of getting what you want is getting what once you wanted. 
Morpheus asks Titania if he's done the right thing, but she only replies that it is a wonderful play. Well, what's interesting to me about this speech, too, is that Morpheus refers to dreams and desires as being effectively the same thing. But there's another person that's desire, another endless. Right. So sort of inherent in his ability to make a deal with a mortal is desires having instilled desires in that mortal. It's worth noting that you can tell from issue 13 that it's not as if he goes out of his way looking for mortals to make deals with. Yeah, that's right. He happened to encounter Shakespeare in a bar. Yeah, and that same issue, he encountered Hob, and... Well, and Hob really has a deal with death, although Dream's the one who became his friend. Right. They came to an arrangement. (laughs) But yeah, I, I think it's interesting that this suggests that Morpheus and Desire are closer in nature than either would like to admit. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Well, the play is ending, and Theseus is holding forth on dreams. The lunatic, the lover, and the poet are of imagination all compact. He continues, The poet's eye in a fine frenzy rolling doth glance from heaven to earth, from earth to heaven. And as imagination bodies forth the forms of things unknown, the poet's pen turns them to shapes, and gives to airy nothing a local habitation and a name. And dream smiles. Which brings us to the infamous uh, hole in the wall. The players are now playing Pyramus and Thisbe, or I should say the players within the play, the Mechanicals. And meanwhile, Morpheus, who is just going to talk through the whole goddamn show, explains to Oberon and Titania why he commissioned the play. During your stay on Earth, the fairy have afforded me much diversion and entertainment. I would repay you for all the amusement, and more. They shall not forget you. That was important to me. The King Oberon and Queen Titania will be remembered by mortals until this age is gone. We thank you, Shaper. But this diversion, although pleasant, is not true. Things never happened thus. Oh, but it is true. Things need not have happened to be true. Tales and dreams are the shadow truths that will endure when mere facts are dust and ashes and forgot. As the play has gone on, the sun has set, it is dark, making this yet another sunset story. And as the Fae prepare to go back to their side of the portal, Puck arranges to stay behind. Yeah, now, I don't think we ever find out what happened to Dick Cowley, but it doesn't seem like Puck's skillful plan to escape returning to Fairy is particularly more complicated than staying in disguise as an actor until Oberon has left. Yeah, that's just about it. With a flash of light, the king and queen of Fairy disappear, leaving Puck alone on the hillside. And I love this page as he recites the apology in the dark with maximum menace. If we shadows have offended, think but this, and all is mended. That you have but slumbered here while these visions did appear. And this weak and idle theme, no more yielding than a dream, gentles. Do not reprehend. If you pardon, we will mend. And, as I am an honest puck, if we have unearned luck now to scrape the serpent's tongue, we will make amends ere long. Else the puck a liar call. So good night unto you all. Give me your hands if we be friends, and Robin shall restore amends. Give me your hands if we be friends being the call for applause. Right, right. Yeah, as the darkness falls over that page, we are left with Puck merely eyes and glowing teeth in the dark, and then complete darkness. William Shakespeare is the first to wake in the morning. Was it all a dream, they wonder? Burbage finds his sack of gold, but inside is only yellow flowers. But we were cheated. No, for we were paid full well. Which other troop has played to such an audience? Hamnet wakes and again tries to tell Will about Titania and his invitation to Fairy, but Will dismisses it as just a foolish fancy. On the cart today you must practice your handwriting. Perhaps you could write a letter to your mother or to Judith. They rouse the rest of the party, and the actors hit the road. And the issue closes on this narration. Hamnet Shakespeare died in 1596, age 11. That's three years later. Robin Goodfellow's present whereabouts are unknown. Much like Jason Bourne. (laughs) That's right. Well, what do you think of that one? I enjoyed it a lot as an homage to Shakespeare, and I thought the art was really cool. Yeah, really nice fairy designs. 
we didn't really talk about them. There's the big blue fellow with the bald head. There's, of course, the little tiny goat woman who eats people. There's uh, Peas Blossom was basically a, an ant. Yeah, they had a sort of anime-ish look to them, a lot of them. Yeah, very uh, sharp features, pointy chins. Well, yeah, and just that and just the sort of assortment of monsters that comes out. Oh, okay. Uh, a lot of them sort of non-traditional in appearance. Mm-hmm. It reminded me of Spirited Away. Oh, okay, yeah. A little bit. I also just thought that the dialogue between the fairy was very fun. Yeah, although, as I noted, they apparently enjoy the play, even though they sit and talk through the whole thing. <laughs> well, yeah. I guess the I guess the sort of the minor fairies are basically the groundlings of this show. <laughs> yeah, that works. I thought this issue was trying to do a lot of things. It's presenting the Shakespeare play, and in such a way as to emphasize that dialogue, which sort of coincidentally reflects the themes of the series. Right. Dreams and writers and writing. And it's also telling this story, this much more somber story, really, about Hamnet Shakespeare and what it's like to be in the life of somebody who's always always writing, always thinking about writing. Yeah. In addition to being, you know, the master of dreams, Morpheus is the king of all imaginary things, mm-hmm. which means that that writers and poets are, are right in his wheelhouse. Yeah. And as you said, Neil Gaiman has a, a fixation on the idea of muse abuse. Mm-hmm. Hamnet fears that were he to die, the only effect that it would have on Will would be that he would write a play about it. Yeah, but Morpheus would say that he is immortalized in that way. And that's well, that's the, true. That's the fate that he wanted for the, the fairy court. Yeah, that's right. That's a very good point. I think it's a fun breather issue. I think if it has a point where it falls flat, I didn't feel like Oberon and Titania were particularly distinctive characters as presented here. Well, yeah, I mean, Oberon gets a chance to play that trick on Burbage, and Titania has her interest in Hamnet. True. You know, we're definitely given to to believe that her behavior in the play mirrors the actual character. Right. So sort of stern, hot-tempered Oberon and ever-flirtatious Titania are extensions of the characters as we know them from the play, if we're more familiar with it. Right, exactly. And of course, Puck is, of the three, the most fun. Yeah. He brought a lot of both levity and menace into the proceedings. Right. I really like that second-to-last page. Just... Strongly hinting that the idea of Puck at large in the human world is not necessarily a safe one. Right. So that brings us to Sandman issue 20, Facade. Written as usual by Neil Gaiman. New penciler, though, Colleen Doran, with inks as usual by Malcolm Jones. Colors by Steve Olaf, and Element Girl was created by Bob Haney and Ramona Fraden. Cover is, as usual, by Dave McKeon. We have a woman holding a pale mask to her face while other dark masks fall about her. And the text reads, I smoke a cigarette and I pretend I'm normal and I wish I were dead. Facade. So we open on a dark apartment as a hand reaches for a pack of cigarettes. And it's hard to tell just yet, but this is not a trick of the light or... Uh, fanciful coloring. This is actually an orange hand. They say that cigarettes will kill you, eventually. Fine. That's just fine. I only wish they'd do it faster. As she smokes, the orange-handed woman drops the ash into a white, face-shaped bowl. She repeats the lines from the cover. I smoke a cigarette and pretend I'm normal, and I wish I was dead. This is Urania Blackwell, or Rainy, aka Element Girl. First appeared Metamorpho number 10, February 1967. And if you're familiar with Metamorpho, she looks a lot like a female version of him. Right, so Metamorpho's two arms and two legs are each in a different color, and his face is pasty white. Yeah, he's a character from the Justice League family. He's Justice League adjacent, at least. And he has the ability to manipulate his body to take the form of any element in the periodic table, 
Or is it any element that's present in the human body? I thought it was any element in the periodic table. At least that seems to be what's presented here. He can also shapeshift. He's got a lot of power, but one of the recurring themes with his character is that he doesn't really like being metamorpho because he's very weird looking and ugly, and he always wants a cure. Right, and it's not exactly like you can do... You know, he can he can fight crime okay, or commit crime. <laughs> if you wanted to, yeah. <laughs> depending on uh, depending on the month. Well, there is a B and E later in this issue. But you can't do simple things, like eat and drink and make love. Well, <laughs> there was an issue of Teen Titans with a really disturbing metamorpho sex scene, so I guess he can do that. I, I see. Please don't link to that in the show notes. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, Rainey calls a guy named Blackwell, who I'm not sure exactly when they mentioned this, but Blackwell works at the CIA, as Rainey used to. And she's calling just to have someone to talk to, basically. The CIA consistently referred to as the company. Right. In this issue. She says she's really depressed, and she asks about her check. She basically collects a disability pension because she's stuck being Element Girl. Wait a minute. Why did I say his name was Blackwell? His name is Mulligan. Yeah, that's She's weird. She's Blackwell. Sorry. Yeah, no, you lost me as soon as you said that, and I was trying to regain the... She's Blackwell. She's Urania Blackwell. I said that already. Sorry, everybody. She's talking to Mulligan at the CIA. Right. I don't know if it's a coincidence that she wishes she hadn't made the decision to become Element Girl, and the guy who she's talking to has a name that means a do-over. <laughs> well, it seems that he flirts with her a little bit, but basically answers her question about her pension check and gets her off the phone quickly. Right. I shouldn't have phoned him. Now I can't phone him for another week. I ought to have waited. Put it off until after lunch. Maybe he'd have talked to me longer after lunch. She thinks about going to visit the CIA so she can have someone to talk to, but she's terrified that they'd cut her pension, and then not so much worried about the money, but she's worried that then no one would call her again and she'd have no one to talk to. The company is all the company I've got. And Mulligan is all I've got left of the company. Nobody ever comes here. Nobody phones. Nobody cares anymore. She opens a window and sits, and she sits without moving all through the day and into the night. In the scene, by the way, we can see that four pale faces are mounted in a diamond on the wall as decorations. Yeah, there are actually masks on the wall all over the place, as we can see in an earlier panel. Right, now the phone rings, suddenly causing a full-page shot of a panicked Rainy, and this is the first time we've seen her face in the light. Yeah, she's stark white, not unlike Morpheus. Yeah, she really does look a lot like him in this page. She's got wild black hair and sort of a ghoulish pale look. The phone! Oh god! Put on a brave face. It's just a telephone. And that's the title page, by the way. Yeah, and the title here... Each of the letters are sort of made out of masks. Now, the caller turns out to be an old friend from the CIA who's still active, Della. She invites Rainey to lunch, and Rainey eagerly accepts, but after she hangs up, she's terrified. And I sit here, and I light another cigarette, and I try to stop trembling. I'll have to put my face on. Yeah, now we can see from a framed picture that she keeps around the house what she formerly looked like. And at this point, she uh, recollects the events that led her to change so much from what she looked like before. She was a CIA agent, and she voluntarily entered the Egyptian pyramid that had turned Rex Mason into Metamorpho so she could be a superhuman agent. She met the sun god Ra, and there's a really horrifying image here of him picking her up and squishing her like clay until she's... Until she's a metamorphe. And she actually recalls in the narration as this is happening that this isn't how it happened. She just saw the orb of Ra and was changed. I also want to point out here, she says that she has two kinds of dreams, bad and terrible. The bad ones are nightmares. And the ones where she never became Element Girl, where she's normal, those are the worst ones. Yeah, and it's making faces that gives her the dreams, she says. So now we come to the point where she uses her manipulation of her powers to approximate her old appearance. 
Right. She can turn into any element, but she says she can't create flesh, or at least not living flesh. It smells rotten when she does that. So she makes faces out of silicon. Yeah, they harden eventually and fall off after a day or so, but at least that doesn't rot. And she makes her hair out of metal, which looks perfectly fine as long as no one touches it. Nobody ever does. Everything else you just cover up. And so, looking very normal and pretty, but feeling sick inside, she goes out for lunch. She also mentions here that the faces are useful and she keeps them around to do ordinary things with. We've already seen her using them as an ashtray and a decoration. Yeah. Well, so, lunch with Della. You look incredible, hun. You haven't aged a single day. You must tell me your secret. Well, Della, it turns out, basically made this date because she has to tell somebody, and Rainey's her only friend not in the company. She's pregnant by another officer who's still married to someone else. You know, it's funny, because Rainey said, the company is all I have, and Della, on the other hand, has no friends she can talk to who aren't in the CIA. And therefore, when she has to keep a secret from the company, she has to call up someone she doesn't know to talk about it. Yeah. And Della then sort of goes off on a tangent. She sees some uh, disabled children out the window. Right on cue, I guess. Right. And she says, Oh, God, Rainy, look at them. Now that's something that freaks me out. I'm 36, and this is my first baby. What if it's like them? What if my baby's a freak? Seemingly very quietly, Rainy says, They're just people, Della. They aren't freaks. It's not that I've got anything against them. It's just that they make my skin crawl. Yuck. Della. And maybe perhaps prompted by the stress of seeing Della be so judgmental, Rainy starts to lose control over her appearance. Yeah, and this is where we see in first person as the silicon mask falls off of Rainy's face. Her face falls off and into her spaghetti bolognese. She gets up and runs away. The waiter inquires, Ma'am, uh, is your friend all right? Skin disease. She's got a skin disease. Something tells me Rainy's not going to be hearing from Della anymore. Right. Well, Rainy gets home and realizes she left her keys at the restaurant. Too afraid to go back, she turns to magnesium and melts her door open. I can't deal with this. I... Mulligan. Mulligan will know what to do. She picks up the phone. Extension 3440, please. She's informed that Mulligan has been transferred to another department. No, he has to be there. He must be there. Tell him it's me, Urania Blackwell. Please, I have to talk to him. Please, look, just... Sorry, ma'am. Officer Mulligan is no longer here. Can anybody else help you? No, but thank you. She hangs up and realizes she's still dressed up to go out. What am I still wearing this shit for? She turns to nitrogen and evaporates out of her clothes. And she sits there, despairing. For a full page, she sits and thinks, I'll kill myself. How? God damn it, how? And as she sits on her bed with her face in her hands, emerging from the foreground, we see death. Um, hello. Do you want to talk about it? I guess this might be a good moment to remind you guys that death is not the usual imposing scary robed dude with a scythe that you might be accustomed to. Right, the death in this series is basically a perky goth, and it's probably worth mentioning is Dream's big sister. Yeah, a... We met uh, her before back in Sandman number 8, The Sound of Her Wings. Yeah, she has the appearance of a cheerful young woman dressed entirely in black. Do you want to talk about it, she asks. Death says that she thought Rainy looked like she needed someone to talk to. She turns down a cigarette, which I thought was pretty funny. And she picks up one of the masks. Nice ashtray. It's it's not an ashtray. I mean, it is. But it's also my face. You see, sometimes I have to look normal and then I grow faces. But they dry up and fall off. But I couldn't throw them away. They're part of me. So I hang on to them. I, I'm probably not making much sense. No, you're making sense. You people always hold on to old identities, old faces, and masks long after they've served their purpose. But you've got to learn to throw things away eventually. 
And uh, this brings us to my favorite line in the comic, which is, Huh, ah, who ah, uh. <laughs> That's terrible. <laughs> uh, yeah, Rainy is crying and not, not in a particularly charming way. I mean, this is, this is a fairly brutal scene. Oh, is that what that's supposed to be? She's got tears streaming down her face. Well, yeah, but I thought she was trying to say something. <laughs> no, she's just uh, just losing it and bawling. Death says, what did I say? Rainy explains that she wants to die. She's afraid of everything except death, but she doesn't know how. I've been thinking about it for so long now. I can't slash my wrists. I don't have any blood. When I was at high school, a kid shut himself in a garage, took sleeping pills, climbed in the car, and turned the ignition. I can't do that. Carbon monoxide's just another gas to me. And my body just processes poisons. I can't shoot myself. A bullet wouldn't do any real damage. So then I get more extreme. Maybe I could sit at ground zero of a nuclear test, if I could find one. But I'm afraid I could survive that. I think I would. Perhaps I'd be radioactive for always, but I'd survive. And then no one would ever want to talk to me. I thought about transmuting myself to free oxygen radicals and just melding with the air. Or, with added hydrogen, I could become water and join myself with the sea. But I'd probably still be conscious, just spread out all over the world. I want it to stop. I don't know how to stop it. And then she starts talking about MASH. Yeah, she mentions the theme from MASH, which, as you may know, is called Suicide is Painless. She sings a couple of lines there. Death says that even Metamorphe die. It just takes a little bit longer for you guys. And she reminds Rainey of Elgon. Now, Elgon was a Metamorpho villain, also created by Bob Haney. First appearance is Metamorpho number 17. He was a Roman centurion who had become an element man. His powers faded over the years, and he... I think he briefly tried to steal Metamorpho's powers, but he ended up wading into lava in an attempt to restore his powers, and instead he died. I think it's interesting that Rainey is uh, is talking about what it's like to be unable to die and to live with the knowledge that you'll have to live forever to death. Not just because of death's job, but because of the nature of being one of the endless. Right. She's going to live longer than Rainey ever will. Right. And she brings a perspective to this conversation. Rainey can't imagine anything that would destroy her, but death has perspective having seen metamorphe die over the course of thousands of years. Rainey, though, wonders how death knew about Algon. But how did you know that? There was nobody there. Only Rex and me. No one else. Me. Who are you? Don't you know? So Rainey realizes who death is, but death says she isn't here for Rainey, just passing by after Rainey's neighbor slipped on a stepladder. I'm not blessed or merciful. I'm just me. I've got a job to do, and I do it. When the last living thing dies, my job will be finished. I'll put the chairs on the tables, turn out the lights, and lock the universe behind me when I leave. I... I don't think I understood all that. But are you saying you won't help me? Is that what you're saying? I've got another 2,000 years of being a freak? 2,000 years of hell? You make your own hell, Rainy. Death starts to fade, but then comes back. Okay, I'll help you, if that's what you want. That's what I get for getting involved. You'll kill me? Take my life? Give me oblivion? Well, death can't exactly do that. She says... Rainy, mythologies take longer to die than people believe. They linger on in a kind of dream country that affects all of you. Dropping the title for the entire trade. And... She says, Ra is what's keeping Rainy immortal, so in order to die, she has to talk to him. It's his never-ending battle against Apep, the serpent that never dies. Dumb. I told him, the serpent that never dies is dead. I took her 3,000 years ago. Talk to him, but he's in Egypt. I can't go to Egypt. I... Death points out, the orb of Ra, it's not only in a tomb. He's a sun god, Rainy. <sighs> yeah. She says, talk to him before he sets, but ask politely. She opens the window and hesitatingly looks up into the sun. She says, I never realized before. The sun, it's just a mask too. And the face behind it, it's beautiful. It's... Yeah, and as she says that, all the multiple colors that she's made up of wash away to white. 
And she's sort of frozen there. She sort of turns to stone or ash or something with a huge smile on her face and then crumbles into dust. Have fun, Rainy. Better luck next time. And at this point, Mulligan calls. God damn it, Mulligan taking a shit or something. (laughs) You missed the whole comic book. Death answers the phone and says, No, she's not living here any longer. No, Mr. Mulligan, I really can't get a message to her. I'm sorry. Who am I? Just a friend. Sometimes. Maybe. Sorry I couldn't help any. Be seeing you. And we close on Franny's silicon face, her own ash collecting in it. So I, I noticed something about that issue. Morpheus isn't in it. That is true. I think that's got to be the first issue of the series without Morpheus. Without any Morpheus whatsoever. I think you're probably right, although I might have to look back at the Doll's House issues to be sure. Mm. Yeah, this is just sort of an endless side story. And by endless, I mean it has his sister who's an endless in it. And I also mean that it kind of dragged on. (laughs) See, I actually thought it went kind of fast. It just seemed like so... I don't know, abrupt, almost. No, I I think that's fair. It gets through a lot of stuff very fast, particularly the diner scene is is almost instantaneous. And it's like, well, why did she think that that face would last that long if it lasted for an hour? Yeah, that that whole thing was strange. I mean, I guess we have to get to the point where we have, like, the most mortifying thing that could have happened to her. Yeah, but it's just... I, I don't know. It just seems like a single incident... And, you know, somebody invited her out to lunch. <laughs> she decided to kill herself because no one ever wants to talk to her the day that someone invited her out to lunch. <laughs> and I suppose that's right. When I first read this issue, I sort of had a problem with the idea that that in the DC universe being super is so, like, weird and disgusting that it ruins your life. Having more exposure to the metamorpho characters, I'm sort of more aware that that was always an element of them. So it makes sense in this context. Yeah, I just found this issue pretty emotionally manipulative. Okay. And I didn't think they really I didn't think they really sold her her despair as much as wallowed in it perhaps. Well, maybe, yeah. It's not one of my favorite issues and it definitely has sort of the tone of this woman's really sad for reasons that aren't maybe the best reasons and then she dies. It didn't feel like there was all that much to it, sorry to say. Yeah, no, I kind of agree with that. And I understand, too, death as a merciful release, which she denies being in the issue, that's an aspect of death that we maybe need to see when we're dealing with death as a character. Outside of that context, the issue is very much about somebody who wants to commit suicide, and then they do, and that was the best decision for them. And that's kind of gross. Yeah, I I think that's a bit shitty. I don't know, it just seems like, it just seems like Gaiman had a very simple idea of this character. And I didn't really get, it it seemed like it was aiming for some kind of psychological realism that just didn't get all the way there. Okay. I think that she's a character who had not had a lot of appearances before this point. As a fixture of the DC Universe, there's not that much to Element Girl. Just sort of a decision that happened and then wasn't necessary. Which is probably why, like, she's the DC Universe character that he can go back to to do a story about death. Yeah, I, I wondered I wondered if part of this was Neil Gaiman showing off his homework again. Mm-hmm. Showing off the depth of his DC knowledge. Especially, like, the part where they talk about Algon. Right, a character who appeared in one issue of Metamorpho. Yeah, one issue, what, 20 years earlier? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this would have been, this would have been like 1967 or 68. Yeah, I mean, I don't mean to crap on the guy too much. I think that what he's working with, you know, a phenomenally deep knowledge of DC lore and a willingness to look at that lore through kind of more adult eyes generally serves him pretty well. It just doesn't work great for this issue. Okay. I do want to say you said that the writing didn't really sell Rainey's Despair, and I think that some very interesting things are done with the art here in order to sell it, particularly 
sequential panels of her in the same position, lost in thought or lost in, in her despair. Yeah, you have a good point there. The art in this issue is amazing. Colleen Doran's work really sells sort of the hyper-realistic unpleasantness of Rainey's changed appearance. Yeah, she's she's not just like four colors. Like you can see that one of her limbs is made of wood and one looks kind of scaly and so on. Right, yeah. There's a degree to which Metamorpho's appearance is not at all striking if he's in a four-color comic book and right and becomes horrifying when brought into reality. And a lot of good stuff is done with light as well. There's an appearance by Ra, which is quite striking. Some really good art and some really interesting panel layouts, I think, in order to convey a lot of story when it's one person by themselves not saying much. Yeah, I I will say for the writing that as an issue that's focused pretty tightly on one character, it doesn't get boring. Mm -hmm. It's possible that, that some of those... Some of those dialogue-free layouts contribute to the book feeling a little abrupt. Well, yeah, I just thought that the inciting incident was so abrupt. Mm-hmm. You know, like, so she goes out for lunch with an unpleasant woman. <laughs> <laughs> like, I understand that she's had a she's had a prolonged a prolonged period of depression in her life leading up to this, but like, I don't know, as a horrible, mortifying moment. It just didn't, the stakes of that lunch didn't feel that high to me, that she would be totally crushed when it goes badly. Well, I think it's not so much that she cares about Della's opinion as that she hasn't taken the risk of reaching out to someone in a long time. Mm, Perhaps. That said, the scene does run by very fast. I think Della, I mean, obviously some work has been put in on giving Della something to talk about, but... She didn't come off as a particularly complex character. Yeah. All right, so we had one really light and fun issue, and we had one really grim issue. Yeah, that's right. And these were uh, these were back-to-back. Hmm. I mean, back-to-back in the original series, right? Not just... That's right. Not just in the trades, so... All right, that brings us to the end of Dream Country. When we next talk about the Sandman, we'll be launching into a new story arc, Season of Mists. But first... Join us next week in Antarctica. Bring your parka. Yeah, we're recording on location. <laughs> As we cover two issues of limited series, The Horrorist. I should say both issues of limited series, The Horrorist. That's right. That's all they made. Hey, if you like our show, check out our website at vertiguys.blueberry.com. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. We've got lots more episodes, plus show notes on every episode. If you're getting this podcast from iTunes, it would be a huge help for us if you would send us a subscription or write us a review. Yeah, we'd also love to hear from you. You can reach us at vertiguys at gmail.com or at vertiguys on Twitter. And as always, thanks so much for listening. Thanks, everybody.